2: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: I think the harvest value is and, and these are estimates but 800 dollars an acre for, you know, the for the thing right. for the oyster. The the ecological services values um, they vary wildly I think and that's that's a um, factor of where the re- reef is in the in the oyster i mean mm-hmm. in the bay system right so the ones on the shoreline are more valuable than the ones out in the open water because the ones on the shoreline provide more s- services right and anyways that you know that that number gets up to twenty thousand dollars per acre i mean it could be it could be like two thousand dollars per acre but it could also approach twenty thousand dollars an acre and
0: All right, We're counting down another episode of the Skiff Wander podcast. I'm joined today by Shane Bonneau. You did it. Did I do it right? You did it right. I was so <laughs> new the whole drive over here. I was like, I'm gonna say it wrong. I should just fly fish. I'm gonna say it wrong. Out on this, um, we're gonna talk a little bit about fly fishing. I got Shane out on the skiff yesterday. We did some, uh, we did we took him out on his first redfish on fly. Yeah. And then uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about some of the conservation issues facing the Texas coast. Shane, you're the um, Director of Advocacy for the CCA Texas, correct? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, talk about growing up here in
1: Texas and how you got into CCA. Sure. So I, I, I did grow up in Texas, Wharton County. Uh, my father is a veterinarian and my mom was a schoolteacher there in Wharton, um, there's four of us. I'm the second of, uh, four older sister and two younger brothers and, um, you know, did all the stuff that kids in a rural County do growing up hunting and fishing and, um, catching snakes and getting in trouble. Lots of stories of me getting in trouble as a child, probably worthy of another conversation, but, um, <laughs> Had a lot of fun. Had a really good childhood. Got to do a lot of outdoor stuff and interacted a lot with um, older older people. Um, as a result of my father's work, he'd take me out on calls to go pull a calf or to go um, do some emergency procedure on large animals. So I got to go out and, and, and be out in the world. You know, I wasn't confined and locked up um, playing video games and on the computer. I mean we we'd always be outside and yeah. playing and do, we had neighborhood friends playing sandline ball and um we had a lot of fun growing up so um family my family has a has a ranch in an adjacent county jackson county and so we'd go out there and i'd help with uh cattle operations and we'd deer hunt and dove hunt and waterfowl hunt i mean we we lived the dream yeah we, we had a, we we're really blessed and that, that property is still in the family and um, still able to go out and do a lot of those things. So on the weekends, Dad would um, take us fishing. When, when he wasn't on call, we'd, and we weren't going to the ranch, we'd go to um, Matagorda Bay. And we didn't have a boat in, through most of my childhood. So my uncle, uh, John Cosper, who was an extension agent for Wharton County, He knew a lot of landowners, and we would get access to Bayfront property. And so we'd drive up and drive through the ranches and get to the shorelines and then get out and walk and wait. And, I mean, a good day was catching a few fish because you're limited to just that spot. Right. And and so we'd do our best. And, and, you know, some days were great, and some days were good, and some days were just thankful to be out on the water situations. (laughs) and so um did a lot of that growing up i mean a lot of my memories revolved around fishing so graduated college and went to college and those two things um large animal vet practice and fishing were like tugging at me yeah um and another thing tugging at me in college was not studying and staying out (laughs) too late and uh, making bad grades so Anyhow, I did apply for vet school, and I didn't get in because of my grades were so bad, but I had an opportunity to um, pursue advanced degree. I mean, I could go off and get a master's and, and then go into vet school. That was kind of the route that, that the uh, administrators told me that I could get in if I did that. And then at the same time, I was hot and heavy with my girlfriend, um, who is now my wife, and she was going to Corpus Christi and mm-hmm. she said, Hey, you love fishing. You love to do stuff on the water. They have this really cool program in Corpus Christi at a and about Marine science and aquaculture, which is, you know, fish farming. And so that intrigued me. So I followed her to Corpus. I wasn't going to let her get away. And I, saw, we went to Corpus and I did my masters in Corpus Christi and mariculture. And loved it. Yeah. Had a really good time there. And then, um, so, did that. And we both graduated and got married. And my first job was um, moving off to Virginia with her. And I went on to manage the oyster hatchery there at Virginia Institute of Marine Science, which is a wonderful experience. And we had a great time and lots of fond memories of Virginia, which is just an awesome state. We wanted to start a family and came back here, and um, I started with Parks and Wildlife, okay. Texas Parks and Wildlife, and 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 I was always fond of Brazoria County, which is where Lake Jackson is, where I'm from now, and um, the opportunity to go back there and, and live there really intrigued me, so this job came up with the hatchery, mm-hmm. Redfish Hatchery in Lake Jackson at Sea Center, Texas, and I jumped on it, and... And we came home, and I I um, stayed there for 10 years and started as a biologist, ended up being the hatchery manager. And that's when CCA, CCA approached me a couple of times, but um, they finally approached me with this advocacy director position, and um, it looked like just a wonderful opportunity to be engaged in, in just a broad spectrum of issues associated with fisheries. And the idea that I could be involved in in, in that conversation of conservation right. and trying to make things better and and leave things better than 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 we found them just really pulled at my heartstrings, and so yeah. that's that's the long story of how I got to where <laughs> yeah. I am.
0: Okay, yeah, um, and then uh...
1: <laughs> I may have wandered off too far, but. You know, it's, there's, there's a lot of things that happen in, in, in life. And then you look at where you, where you are now and what you're doing and you try to pull things out from your life and, and see it, you know, who was steering you along to get to where you are now? How did you get there? And so for me, those things that, that I think that, that did that were on the banks of Caroncua Bay fishing with my father and my uncle and, and we we're bait fishing and there's a cork and cork goes under and I'm locked in, my knees are locked, and whatever's on the end of my line is pulling me out into a chronicle Bay, sliding on the mud and the oyster shells. And I wanna I wanted I wanna create that opportunity for a lot of people. And so right. I you know, I, I think about that specific moment a lot of times and and I wonder if there was something that happened within me at that moment that's got me to where um what I'm doing now. Yeah. And so um, that's why I kinda of elaborated on, on that.
0: No, there's definitely I think like, you know, we talked a little bit on the skiff yesterday and I kinda of had that a similar not similar but similar moment of like, you know, being outdoors and kind of realizing, hey, if there's a way I can present this to people and and give them the opportunity or, or, or make them wanna be out there and it's you know, it's cool to see like you know, I've taken this approach of, of content creation and you've gone into CCA and try to make more opportunities through conservation. And I'm definitely glad that we can sit down and (laughs) combine the two. Um, so what, what, I know you said you have a broad scope as the advocacy director with CCA. Can you kind of go in a little bit more into, to your role there and what you're doing?
1: Yeah. So we, um, I'm I'm my position's a little weird. I mean, I'm, I'm I work for CCA Texas, but I also do a little bit of stuff for for national.
0: All right, sorry we had some batteries die on us. Uh, you're talking about just the process to for legislature and yeah, yeah.
1: It, and what I, the the role as advocacy director. So fisheries management through Parks and Wildlife or through the legislature in Texas or federal fisheries management through the Gulf Council. And then, you know, that's that's a lot of what I do. I also get out and speak to the members, go into uh, chapter meetings. I mean, we, we have 58, hope to soon have up to 60 chapters across Texas alone. And so um, the, they hold monthly or bi monthly, or um, some of them just hold a couple of meetings a year. But the ones that are really engaged have monthly meetings every month. And they're bringing in guest speakers and, talking to their members about what's important to them and what they want to see happen in their local region. So I'll go out occasionally and and talk to the chapter members Mm -hmm. and get feedback from them or present a topic to them. And then, you know, some of the work that we've, we get involved in is has to do with stuff like freshwater inflows and issues that revolve around you know the ingro- the growing industrial complex in specific regions of Texas i mean yeah. we're we're in one now where you're just yeah. seeing this rapid growth and development with the petrochemical industries and and so there's there's conflicts that arise as a, as a result of that and so we're you know we have to be engaged in that conversation and in the process of deciding what's best for the coast and although you know what you and I want may not ultimately be uh, within the realm of reality, right? Um, we Fine. we still need to be in there and in discussing yeah. what's in, what you know speaking for the resources. So right. we're we're involved in that as as well.
0: Yeah, finding that kind of middle ground where we can all come to the table and and walk away with maybe not excited, but at least feeling like we're we're heard. And and that was honestly one of the I think. Um, you know, if anybody listening to this ever has an opportunity to go to one of those hearings like we went to last night, I think they definitely should and get a chance to see the process that a lot of these legislative rules go through. Um because I'm, I that's the second one that I've managed to make it to and it, it's really cool process just to see and and to really see that, you know, voices get heard. Um I know some of People they may not feel like their voices are quite heard, but you know, they're definitely, they definitely are. And, and I like that, you know, even a rule change as simple as trout bag limits goes through the right process and everybody gets a chance to, to speak to it. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about what we were witnessing last night? What we were doing last night? Yeah,
1: okay. So last night we were in Corpus Christi. At uh, Texas a Corpus and Parks and Wildlife was hosting a public hearing for mm-hmm. for some proposed rules that the Texas Parks and Wildlife Commission is going to consider later this month, um, early early uh, 2022. And those those rules are a response to the freeze event that happened February 2021, and it's a temporary measure to increase the spawning stock biomass of trout so try to help the sp- the tr- species recover from right. the freeze cuz a lot of fish were lost in the freeze and um, the the specific regulations are a, a pretty tight slot size 17 to 23 inches and then a three fish bag limit which is a two fish drop from the current five fish bag limit um, those would expire in August August 31st 2023 mm-hmm. give them two, give them 2 years to, um at, at this new regulation to try to get the um, stock back up and you know it's going to take longer um uh, well, let me just say this it's in in previous freeze events there have been regulation changes yeah afterwards but they were permanent right after each of those regulation changes and I'm talking about 1983 and then the ones in 1989 after those regulation changes, it took two to three years for the um, catch rates in Parks and Wildlife gill nets to come back, to, come back right. to, to that mean level. That does not mean it took two to three years for, you know, a bunch of 27-inch fish to start showing right. up. That takes a long seven time. to eight years. So your catch rates get back up to where they were historically, but your size distribution takes longer.
0: Right, and yeah and that was i I know for me it was cool to see the them present the science and and you could really see you know that that they're not just coming out of left field with the regulations they're really looking at the data and the the trend lines and and trying to make sure that the long term impact from that freeze you know we can recover quickly Because um, I, I' looking at it my my eyes I definitely saw the the drop and you know I think It looked like they had a few places that they didn't
1: expect to see it, up in Matagorda Bay. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's a um there was a really significant disconnect between what individuals were seeing immediately after the freeze. Yeah. Like like people went out a lot of people went out to go look at the damage and the devastation because they knew that fish were floating or fish were lethargic. So they went to go get videos and pictures and things like that and they were reporting hundreds and hundreds thousands of fish and then the initial assessment came out that the department conducted and those were two different things like they weren't connecting yeah what the department was saying what people were saying were not jiving and so now the data from the gillnets does jive with what these guides and these anglers were seeing out on the water on the middle coast. And so um, the guides and, and the the people that were reporting the, the kills um, are are happy to see that the department is doing something now. Yeah. They wish that, that they were a part of that initial emergency ruling that mm-hmm. the lower and the upper Laguna Madre received, um, which is a 180-day deal. Uh, they wish they were a part of that originally, but... You know, let's let's move on from that and yeah. get something done. Yeah. No, it's and like I said, it it's cool. To, it's cool to be a
0: part of that and see that process. And um, I know personally, it's something I want to take more and more, you know, voice in and and seeing firsthand.
1: Well, let me just highlight that point. It's important for, I mean, because I see this whether it's with state fisheries or federal fisheries. Like You need to be engaged yeah. in the process. Typing something on Facebook is not engaging <laughs> in the process. No. Show up. Speak to the managers that are making the decisions or the elected officials that are making the decisions. And present yourself in a respectful manner and articulate your position. And you'll be heard. Yeah. You might not get the answer you want, but to be, you need to be a player on the field. And and not just a, a spectator. If somebody if
0: somebody listening to this wanted to become more involved, um, where's what are some good websites to kind of keep an eye on for those dates? Because uh, I know the hearings, you know, they're they're not like a set like every Tuesday. They kinda, yeah, when they yeah. need them.
1: Good question. You you know the best thing you can do if 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 you want to talk specific to to um, fisheries, parks and wildlife, mm-hmm. you can actually sign up for. Uh, email alerts okay. on on their news releases and on their public meetings. You can go to their website and there's a you know just you, I don't know I'm off the top of my head. Yeah, no, but I'll, 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 I'll look. It, I'll link it, but you can you can find you can sign up for those alerts. And then also, if you're interested in in um, policy and and laws, you know you can sign up each legislative session. You can sign up for alerts for when committees are meeting to talk about specific things you can sign up for those alerts if you want to take a drive up to austin and participate in that (laughs) yeah (laughs) but yeah and and then federal fisheries through the gulf council Mm -hmm. gulf of mexico fisheries management council same situation okay You, you know so um and then the other thing is you know join groups that speak for your cause whether it's galveston bay foundation or cca or Flatsworthy, or or whomever you know backcountry hunters and anglers you know whatever you like to do find a group that represents you and and um advocate through them yeah so
0: (laughs) i know that uh i know we we talked a little bit beforehand about getting straight into Fly fishing, but since we're in the conservation, I think let's uh, let's let's hit the big one. Okay. All right. So, um, Shane, you talked a little bit earlier about you spent some time in Virginia uh, managing the oyster hatchery up there, and uh, right now, Texas coast is we're kind of faced with um, some major oyster issues, some major harvesting issues um, from commercial fishermen in our bay systems. There, uh, the reefs, the oyster reefs are kind of getting, they're getting decimated and, uh, there's some changes that need to be made and the science is starting to point more and more towards those changes. Um, let's, I would like to start talking about this with kind of talking about oysters as a whole throughout the U S which if you feel comfortable speaking to that and then, you know, definitely narrow down. And so we can kind of see, you know, what's happened in the past, say in New York, or Apalachicola or, or even Virginia where you were at. And then we can kind of narrow that back into what's going on with Texas and where Texas is at, because, um, I've heard you say it and I've seen it, you know, this is kind of, we're repeating ourselves and I just want everyone listening to this to kind of see like where we're at in this process and where we need to go from here to try to avoid ending up like, you know, Long Island sound or,
1: place like that okay you know i'm gonna do my best i can speak a little bit more to virginia than i can to other states but you're right i mean the theme the theme is the same you you have um, over exploitation of a limited resource that is pressured by um, other external forces whether that be pollution or Lack of rain, or too much rain, or or storm surge with sediment covering the, covering in them up. Um, but you know, throughout throughout our our small narrow window of what we know about about oysters through our experiences with them, you know, as as we discovered this species as when we when we came across the the ocean and and walked along the shorelines and could see these things that you could just pluck out of the water and, and, and eat, um, we realized that there's something to this. And, you know, Native Americans figured this out a long, long, long time, time ago. Uh, but, you know, we, uh, we have a, a history of not paying attention to nature. And so uh, the, you know... In in New York, a good a really good book to read about New York Harbor is a book called "The Big Oyster" mm-hmm. by Mark Kurlansky, and he 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 goes through the the history of that of that uh, harbor and oysters and man's relationship and the the struggle that 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 they've had, and and more recently there there's there's efforts underway to to get the oysters back in the harbor. You know they have the billion oyster march, which is a um an effort to you know through a hatchery program through stock enhancement to put oyster spat on shell and put that shell back out into the water to to start the reefs over Mm -hmm. um now they'll never be able to eat them because the water is so polluted yeah it's not safe for human consumption but it'll still do all of the fun stuff that oysters do in the water all the ecosystem services they provide and so um Back down the coast to Virginia, you know, you just you, you see the decline in, in New England and New York and move down to the mid Atlantic, and, and then the decline starts there. And, and you know, Virginia's fishery uh, was a, and Maryland's, and New Jersey, Delaware mm-hmm. Bay, all those were robust fisheries, pristine estuaries, and just the same situation over harvest, pollution excess runoff, um, siltation, those things, yeah. those things happened again. And, and, you know, the, when I went to Virginia, that whole program through Virginia Institute of Marine Science, the Aquaculture Genetics and Breeding Technology Center, which was, that was the, the effort that the state had to help the industry rebound through, um, creating brood stock that could be disease resistant that resistant that and then brood stock that would grow fast and help farmers uh, have a product so in that job we selected traits for oysters and then bred those selected traits together to try try to create an oyster that could grow fast and 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 provide something for industry so now i mean that state is rebounding Mm -hmm. um not just that state that that region is rebounding a lot of restoration efforts have gone into the chesapeake and then they have accepted and have um really capitalized on things like oyster farming yeah growing oysters in cages using a hatchery system to provide the seed and then growing that seed out through a nursery and then finally out in the water um, open open bay with with cages and so you know, that's been accepted, well accepted in that area and it's doing it's doing well. And then even the native reefs are coming are coming back through As a result. As a result of decreased pressure mm-hmm. and recognition and creation of sanctuary reefs and just having enough seed released back out, seed oyster larvae yep. released back out into the water to to um, set on whatever structure is, is out there. So um, you know, it, it takes a long time, but that process is beginning and, and that fishery is starting to rebound. Um, and then you mentioned Apalachicola, you know, I think that that bay has gone reverted to tong only, using, yeah. you know, like wooden yeah. tongs or so hand tonging only in that area. So, because again, just, um, too much harvest pressure, Yep. you know, and I think there becomes a tipping point for, um, oyster the oyster fishery and you you never want to go beyond this point and and the fact that you become seed limited like you don't have enough oyster larvae in the water to to set on whatever structure is out there hopefully oyster shells and you know when you become seed limited you start to have you have problems and that's when you have to um, look at incorporating hatcheries and and doing large-scale restoration efforts and, you know, so you see these things, and you, I mean, you just look and you read about what other states have gone through and the decline of oysters across other regions. It's the same species. I mean, yeah. all the way from Mexico up to um, um, Massachusetts, it's the same oyster. So all we have to do is look at what other states have gone through and and the struggles that they've had. and realize that what's happening now here in Texas can't sustain. I mean, it is not sustainable and we can go into reasons why that, why that is specific reasons if you want. Uh, but you know, the, the basic uh, situation we're in is too many boats and not enough oysters. Right. Um, and, and there's reasons why that happened. And I think we have a really great opportunity in front of us to, um, while we still have seed in the water, we still have plenty of oyster larvae in the water for the most part. We have an opportunity to shift the industry off the public reefs, Mm -hmm. maybe not entirely, but you know, some portion of shift off the public reefs and create, um, a network of sanctuary reefs so that the bays stay fully seeded with oyster larvae and then opportunities for conservation groups to, uh, continue to actively engage in restoration, but make that effort, uh, um, uh, have a really ease of entry and, and, and really capitalize on this concept of leasing the bay bottom. So um, we want to we want to do bay bottom leases yeah. to where you know we could we could enter into an agreement with the the state and and have designated areas for restoration and those areas would never be opened to harvest. Okay. Um, and so uh, yeah, let me just go through the the list of things. Yeah, let's it, yeah let's dig okay?
0: into yeah let's definitely. Um, Talk a little bit before we dig into it, um, just so people have a better understanding of kind of the life cycle of oysters, um, and then, you know, I know like I'm I'm actually this is something I'm curious about. Like some of these reefs out here, like if you know, like a general time frame on like how long, you know, to build those up because I know that that doesn't happen quickly.
1: Yeah, it's a good good place to start. Yeah, so oysters live except like they live about 10 to 12 years and start spawning their first year. They typically spawn as males. They're usually males the first year. It takes a lot less energy to be a male than it does to be a, to, to be a female. Um, after that first year um, they can be male or, or female and sometimes they switch from one to the other again it it takes a lot more. Um, energy reserves to create an egg than it does to have sperm. So, um, that's just a real generalized way of putting it, putting it, but they, um, they grow, um, you know, they, they take nutrients from the water and, and, and put that energy either into growth and mm-hmm. putting calcium into their shell or, or, um, spawning. And so they're filter feeders. They take uh, phytoplankton and, um, Suspended particles out of the water column, and they'll filter them out. They can filter up to 50 gallons of water a day. Uh, each individual oyster can do that, and and then um, you know what they're releasing is, is a little bit cleaner than what they what they took in, and so they're they're you know they're vital to to the base systems ecology and and they they help create a healthier ecosystem. So as these reefs, as when the oyster spawns. Um, it releases eggs or it releases sperm, and those, those exchange in the water column. So, fertilization of the egg happens in the water column. And that egg will develop quite rapidly, and it, it forms a, a larvae, mm-hmm. a veliger. And so, it's this little guy, just it's got some cilia sticking out, and it's just like <laughs> trying to swim along, but really, yeah. it's kind of just being Wherever, around right. with the currents. And so it'll, it'll remain in that larvae form, and, and, and it grows, and it's, it's, has a, it's has a shell, but it's real soft, and um, it's uh, very, very thin. And so it, uh, it's swimming around in the water column, you know, feeding mm-hmm. for two to three weeks, and after that point, it, it starts to develop an eye spot, which is negatively phototactic, so it, it knows how to orientate itself to set on something. Okay. So when that when that happens, right before that happens, it it um it has a little foot, yeah. That it puts out, and and it's this little thing that, so that it falls out of the water column and it can kind of just scoot itself along to find a place to set. And so it looks for. Um, I say looks. I mean, it yeah. find it finds a. It knows how to orientate itself, and it finds a place to. To set and so it'll actually you know physically attach to something right you know hopefully another oyster shell and and then it's stuck there for the rest of its life and it and, and it'll it'll grow and um you know oysters can get quite large you right know, larger than our our hands if you if you let them if they get to that 12 year mark uh, but as that oyster grows you know it it grows probably next to another oyster mm-hmm. on an oyster reef and then subsequent generations are, are attaching to them right. and so that happens over years and years and years and the reef gets bigger, bigger and bigger and the ones at the bottom eventually get choked out or, the, or they something else happens they get disease or they die uh, from old age and but the reef continues to grow and that shell's still there and it's bound together still with mm-hmm. all of these other shells. Even though the oyster's dead, it's still a part of that that network. And, um, you know, it it takes decades for reefs to get, to build get, up. Um, to, to, as big, as, big up. as some of the ones in these bays are. Yes. Yeah. And so the only bay system that we, in Texas, that we have as a reference is uh, Sabine Lake. mm mm-hmm. There's a deep water oyster reef in Sabine Lake and uh, CCA and and other groups have been involved in, um, doing restoration projects around that reef, but that reef has a, like a five foot vertical relief Mm -hmm. now. So from the top of the reef to the, the Bay bottom and the areas around the reef, Mm -hmm. there's like a five to six foot difference. And so, um, that tells you that tells me that that reef um, has built up, It hasn't that 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 system hasn't been harvested in like fifty years on that okay. on a, on the Texas side of Sabine Lake, and so you know it's it's hasn't been touched for decades and it has a five to six foot vertical so relief. So it takes relief. so it takes a long time, long time. To, a long long time. Now oysters are resilient in that you can you can reseed the top layer of a reef very quickly, mm-hmm. you know, one it, it to two years and you'll have, let's say you harvest a reef and you scrape all of the keeper size oysters off of that. Yeah. Well, it'll only take two to three years for the new generation to, to set on there and grow and become keeper size. The, the issue is that, you know, when you dredge these reefs and you scatter these oysters out, you, you keep dropping the relief, right? you know, the, the, the height of that reef continues to decrease and you scatter the oysters out and then they become more vulnerable to being covered up by silt. silt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we had pointed to in this letter that we submitted to Texas parks and wildlife department is to have some sort of metric that recognizes the importance of vertical relief right so that they don't become vulnerable to being silted over which is what happened in galveston bay during a hurricane ike yeah you know, most of our fishery was supported by galveston bay all you know all of not all but most of the oyster activity came from that region and we lost those reefs um, during that storm event um and then all the pressure shifted down here yeah and so now we're seeing i mean these guys here that live in this area rockport Fulton, um, Aransas Pass, guys in Matagorda—they're seeing they've seen it too. In that reefs that they used to be able to get out on and, and wade, or reefs that used to be able to provide um, um, sanctuary for shorebirds mm-hmm. at low tides, they're no longer—they either mm-hmm. they're not there or they've they've just dropped down to a point. So I used to be able to wade a reef that's was waist high, now it's you know, I'm at my chest. And I, so that situation's just kind of uh repeating itself and and that's why we're saying let's we have an opportunity now to do something, let's capitalize on it.
0: I need to um I'm gonna link in the in the down below in the show notes, um, the podcast that you did with uh, I'm gonna, i'm gonna forget their name McLeod and yeah scott McCloud mcleod yeah, yeah.
1: mike mike michael weiss mike weiss yeah two.
0: because that was a great like hearing their insight you know those are two guys that have spent their life watching these oyster reefs and just listening to their and in, insight as to what's going on out there just kind of mind-blowing but yeah Definitely, going if if you're listening to this and you want to listen to some more, listen to to Shane's podcast that he that he does on this because it's it's really good, it's really insightful. Those
1: guys are great. Yeah, two former two retired game wardens, and they've um, spent a lot of time on the water, especially Scott McLeod because he he stayed in this area for all of his thirty years as a, as a game warden. He stayed along the Middle Coast, and he he's he's seen it. Yeah, and he has been frustrated with it, but never really had the opportunity to participate in trying to make it better, or at least he wasn't heard. Right. And uh, he's trying to. They're both trying to um, make change, as 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 are a number of other people and organizations.
0: Because yeah, it seems. I mean, from what you know, I've, from what I've seen and read, it seems like basically what's going on right now is as. As the the, are out there, the scientists are out there and they're taking, you know, they're they're judging the reef themselves to look at the size of the oysters to make sure that there's enough oysters on these reefs to harvest. And as they realize these reefs aren't harvestable anymore, they're shutting them down. And as they shut these reefs down, the oyster boats congregate on what little areas are still open. And then those areas are just rapidly getting, you know, 100, 150 plus boats on them in a day. Which, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> um, so in 2019, there were close to 400 boats counted in Sea Drift, Texas, 400, and you know, a lot of the workers that that are on these boats aren't staying in hotel rooms, right? They're living on the boats, right? And so that's a significant. Um, um, I would say strain on that local area of body of water. Right. Um, Oh yeah. So the, uh, the, the problem, you're right. The problem is these, these boats get concentrated into these areas because base systems are closed and it goes back to too many boats, not enough oysters. But the reasons there's too many boats is because, um, There was a moratorium put on oyster licenses. So they said, okay, we're not going to sell. They they passed a law Mm -hmm. that said, we're not going to sell any more oyster licenses. This is it. This is all that there's going to be. If you have one now, great. If you want to get one later, sorry. As that law was being made, there was um, lobbying done by the oyster industry to set a a delayed window of when that closure date would be. So during that time, a lot of oyster licenses were bought prior to that deadline. Instead of cutting it off immediately, they gave them an opportunity. To just go out and buy as many as they could afford. A significant more number of oyster licenses were bought but they just sat there. They weren't being fished mm-hmm. back when when this when the moratorium was put in place. And I think that was maybe 2007. I could be wrong on that year, but somewhere in that time frame. And so the, those oysters, just were, the, those licenses, excuse me, were just tabled. They were just sitting there. I mean, they would be renewed, but they weren't actively fishing. <clears throat> so from 2007 to today, mm-hmm. there's been a series of, oyster sack limit changes, number of oyster sacks that a harvester could harvest in a day. As those sack limits have gone down, they've just put more boats in the water. Right. So the the pressure on the resource has sustained. The visual pressure on the resource, in my mind, has increased because right. you just see so many more boats out there than you did in the past, but the pressure, the pressure is the same and we're seeing the same things that we've done in, like i said in galveston bay and other other areas we're we're degrading these reefs and we need to do something to, so that we don't get to that tipping point that we spoke of earlier
0: yeah and uh i want to before we get into kind of solutions can you talk a little bit about um let's start with the the ecosystem the the environmental impact so kind of the ecosystem around the oyster reefs because one of the things that you know as as I've gotten more and more into fly fishing and redfish and I read about you don't you know you read about marsh you, you read about the different ecosystems that you can look for redfish in and one of the ecosystems that's normally mentioned is oyster reefs they're not mentioned as like oh here's a food source it's like here is a habitat to look for redfish on so if you could speak a little bit to kind of how the the environmental impact of losing those oyster reefs, and then the economical impact of losing those oyster reefs, because I know yeah. there's the dollar amounts
1: are just, yeah, it's it's not good. <laughs> it's, it's, there's there's a, a lot that you could attribute uh, economically to oysters, yeah. whether it's through ecosystem services or recreational opportunities that. It's it's um, far more valuable if you look at it in those terms as opposed to oyster harvest. And right. so, we do have some some um, information on our website and some memes on our website that that um, articulate those values. I, I think the harvest value is, and and these are estimates, but eight hundred dollars an acre for you know the for the thing right. for the oyster the the ecological services values um they vary wildly i think and that's that's a um, factor of where the reef is in the in the oyster i mean Mm -hmm. in the bay system right so the ones on the shoreline are more valuable than the ones out in the open water because the ones on the shoreline provide more services right and anyways that you know that that number gets up to twenty thousand dollars per acre I mean, it could be be like $2,000 per acre, but it could also approach $20,000 an acre. And then the recreational value, I don't know the specific, I don't remember the specific number, but it's in that $20,000 range, I believe. I think that's what I remember somewhere around there. And so oysters um, do all these ecosystem services for the bay system. And we talked about filtering the water, but they also break up wave action Mm -hmm. as it goes across the, the bay. And, uh, which helps protect your shorelines, right? it also helps more sunlight penetrate the water column. So that benefits seagrass. Mm-hmm. Um, they sequester carbon, they take carbon out and, and capture it. And so, you know, that's a real neat way to, uh, that, you know, you may start to see more interest in that I and mean, that's a conversation that's being had as it relates to carbon capture, right? And and getting industry support on whether it be restoration or getting industry support and in, on the mariculture uh, um, notion, um, and then you know they the the habitat component of it is is that they they uh, provide refuge or food or habitat for three hundred and three aquatic species different aquatic species so i mean it's a coral reef yeah it's a coral reef in our right. bay system there's really not much difference and and if you look at the values that those things add to those respective areas they're they're kind of the same one's prettier than the other but <laughs> they're they're the same thing and and so redfish in particular well not in particular sheep's head black and redfish they're attracted to these areas because of uh what they provide from for food for food sources so they're in there trying to nibble at crustaceans right uh sheeps that are in there picking stuff off of the oyster shells sheeps that are fascinating i yeah. know they're difficult to get on a fly but that's a texas I've, permit yeah, i've really fallen in love with that fish it is it's it's an awesome awesome fish it is the swine of the sea that's what i call it because it eats anything yeah and and it's got the great it's got some great teeth for eating anything great teeth (laughs) yeah those are cool fish yeah Um, any anyhow you know redfish are attracted to these to these areas because of what they provide for food source and 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 other fishes are attracted to those areas for the same reasons and so you just have this whole um network of fishes trying to capitalize on what's there and um the you know, you, you, you mentioned marsh habitat and, and marsh habitat is is valuable mm-hmm. as is the um, you know the, the, the shoreline seagrass is valuable. Mm-hmm. But oyster reefs, if you when you when you put a value on them, the amount of aquatic biomass that they have is four and a half times greater than the biomass found in seagrass. And the biomass on an oyster reef is like 11 and a half times the biomass found on that cordgrass uh, right. uh, fringe area. So they just hold a lot more. Organisms, right? Than the, than these other areas, but we don't we don't tend to give them the same amount of respect as we do those other areas. They're not as pretty. They're not as pretty. It's probably <laughs> their issue. And you can't for a lot of times you can't see them. I mean they're underwater. Yeah. It's happening out of sight. So if it's out of sight, it's out of mind.
0: Right. No, and then uh, yeah. It, so let's go into a little bit um,
1: kind of what measures are being proposed yeah and this so we've we've proposed several we've suggested several actions that we thought the department should consider and i say we it's a it's a um several conservation Mm -hmm. organizations i'll list a couple but i'm gonna miss some then and then also there's others that are submitting their own letters expressing similar concerns but they may not have agreed with every single thing that we had in ours but the which is fine. I mean, we all want the same thing. We right. just have inter- different ideas yeah. of how to get there. Which is, I think, that's wonderful. Uh, CCA Texas, Flatsworthy, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Matagorda Bay Foundation, Galveston Bay Foundation, um, International Crane Foundation, and there's a number of others that are that are on there. We ha- we had uh, several uh, freshwater fishing organizations jump in as as well because you know. They're ahead of us, typically, on the yeah. coast with regards to conservation, but they know um, the value of habitat, and so um, they, they jumped in on the letter. And so it's available on, on CCA Texas's website, and you can see on there what we recommended, and that was this concept of expanding a lease program, mm-hmm. both for conservation groups and for the commercial industry. So set-aside conservation leases and set-aside commercial leases. So this lease concept, commercial leases would be in locations that were um, where reefs used to be Mm -hmm. or where there's still structure there for um, a a base or a bottom where they could reestablish a lease And and in areas that would be productive for oyster growth. Uh, right salinities, right freshwater inputs, you know, all those things um, that environmental factors that you'd want for oyster production. And, you know, the, you, you could do the same thing for the conservation leases. So let's put them in spots where we know that oysters will grow, where, where um, a reef restoration project would work. Whether that be the commercial or the conservation lease, you, they would have exclusive rights to those areas, meaning... If it was a conservation lease, it would not be open to public harvest. Okay. It would be closed off to harvest. And it would just be there to do all the ecosystem services. Of course, anglers could fish over them and fish on them, whatever. But we want those oysters to stay in the water. The commercial lease would be harvestable, but only to the leaseholder. They're going to be the ones putting the shell out and putting the substrate out there to recruit oyster spat. So they would have exclusive rights for the term of the lease. And now they're invested in the And they're invested in, in it. So we have a small portion of this in Galveston Bay, like 2,300 acres or something like mm-hmm. that, are leased. We want that concept expanded. Louisiana has tens of thousands of acres of oyster leases. And, and several of the companies in Texas, in Galveston specifically, hold a lot of acres of leases in Louisiana as well. So they know the program. Yeah. They know how this works. Yeah. We just need to, to get their buy-in on expanding that. Well, we want their buy-in, I should say, and, and expand that across the Texas coast to relieve pressure on our, our public reef system. The other thing we asked them to do was develop that sanctuary mm-hmm. reef network and identify spots to where you would close off reefs that are in the public reef system from uh, harvest and let them do, again, all those things that they do in the water column. And hopefully serve as a seed source for adjacent public reefs. And then we also, we ask them to recognize that vertical relief component right. of the reefs and, and include that as a metric in their management of opening and closing base systems. Yeah. And then that's to address that whole siltation problem with, with public reefs. So those were the main things that we asked for in, in that letter. And again, there's other groups that are sending their own letters that may ask for something different or um may ask for things in their own uh, yeah. way. There there is some concern from other groups about the the socioeconomic impacts mm-hmm. of um taking away some of the public reef system or creating a commercial lease system and what that's going to have on Uh, some of the smaller players in the oyster industry. They don't know that they have the financial resources to participate in a commercial lease. And then there's worried about, you know, there's some concern about if you take away some of the public reefs from harvest, then that's just less opportunity for them. And that's something the department will have to talk about and consider. And, you know, know, from our point, it's like what's best for the ecosystem. Right.
0: Yeah, so we have long-term oyster. Right harvest and then the um another thing that i think is it's starting to get fired up on the texas coast a little bit is oyster
1: farming and there's already i think he's two farms two farms that i know of that okay. have been fully permanent and they actually have oysters in the water there's right one in, one in copano bay and, and one in galveston bay and those there's, there's the from what i've gathered there's been a quite a bit of of uh just n- lack of belief that that can work even though it's even though it works <laughs> and it's been proven to work in other yeah. states i've talked to several uh, industry oyster industry mm-hmm. people commercial fishermen and um i'm surprised at, at just the their lack of belief I, I just you know it's um it's a little frustrating but you, well, you know we helped create that uh law that allowed this well, to happen yeah. So that was passed in, uh, 2019. And so now we can have oyster farming in Texas. You can apply for a permit and you can have an off bottom lease and the permitting process takes a little while and you might be looking at nine months to a year to go through all of the permitting mm-hmm. process, but you can, you can lease areas, um, you, you select an area yeah. and it has to go kind of through a vetting process has, to, you know, the, the user conflicts have to be addressed hopefully you don't want any right you know can't be um n- near a an oil and gas well or or off off of a property owner's shoreline and they don't want to have to look at this all the time so you have to think about those things in, in your permitting um but yeah you can permit for an off-bottom um, lease and and grow oysters in cages and it does work um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know the, the the tricky thing about oyster mariculture or the thing that really needs to to happen for the success of mariculture in Texas is we need a, a hatchery system yeah and or at least a hatchery mm-hmm. to supply seed oyster oyster small oysters to the farmers and um, right now they're outsourcing to other states and Parks and wildlife is allowing that but they have, set a, a deadline of when they're not going to allow that any right. longer. And that I mean that deadline could change. Yeah. Through another rule making. But right now with the deadline's at, I think we have five years left to get a hatchery system in, in Texas and that's where I see that effort needs to be to be put. So somebody in the private industry hopefully will step up and start doing that. Yeah.
0: To, that's what my next question is going to be is if if there is anyone already trying to get a
1: hatchery going along the texas coast there there is and it's um it's the uh Palacious marine agriculture research organization they are a uh it's an aro agriculture mm-hmm. research organization under the ed rochelle foundation which is kind of in, out of the corpus area okay and so they they um Dr. Joe Fox is heading that up and, um, they've pulled in some people from the heart research Institute. And uh, so they they have a hatchery manager, they have a, a director of research and they have some staff and they're breaking ground to build a hatchery in Palashas. Okay. Um, but they're kind of a unique thing. I think their, their hope is to be kind of like a public private yeah. situation. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, which is great. I just, you know, if um that's that place I'd see it more as a teaching and educational center and showing people how to participate in the industry and maybe doing eventually doing some of the things that are similar to what I was doing at Vim's and, right. and working out the genetics and the breeding of, of broodstock. Um I think I think uh, as far as mass production of seed for a future industry that you'd want to look to private.
0: Private, yeah. Uh, it's just going to take time. I mean, I, I think what, so those first farms, that'll probably be two or three years before they're ready to harvest. No, I mean, or we sooner. can get yeah sooner. Sooner. Yeah. So I, I mean, and I might be a little off here, but it's, to me, it seems like once those first harvests start coming in, it's going to really kind of, people will start to be like, oh, okay, this is possible. And then I think that'll hopefully can help get the ball rolling a little quicker on, on, you know, yeah.
1: establishing a, a, a a nursery a you know consumers can drive yeah. this a lot quicker than um the industry can yeah if the consumers at the restaurants at the half shell markets demand a farmed oyster because it's it looks better if you're talking about half shell and mm-hmm. half shell oysters it has a better presentation on the plate and uh it's cleaner the shell's cleaner and so um, Brad Lomax with Water Street Restaurant in Corpus Christi is the guy in Copano Bay that has oyster, mm-hmm. oysters in the water, and so you know he's looking at providing oysters for his for his family's restaurant there at Water Street. They they go through six hundred thousand oysters a year, half shell oysters. So he wants to do his own. Yeah, and and that's how it can start, you know. And people go there and and see the oysters that he offers as opposed to. The place next door that's having to um, provide oysters from um, public reefs. Right. I mean, they look they look different. And they taste well. They couldn't taste the same, but it just depends on where they're grown. It, right. Uh, right. What base system they come from. I mean, they really do. They're. It's like inhaling the essence of the sea. It's wherever the oysters grown. Yep. It's going to um, encapsulate that.
0: No, that's what I've always liked. You know, when you get to try oysters from different places, because you definitely can kind of taste you know that place in those oysters yeah and there's always kind of
1: always an argument over like who has the best oysters (laughs) always the best but it's fun you know these guys that get into farming can can really do some neat things with marketing and and um capitalizing on where their farms are
0: yeah no it's you know it's it's definitely you you drive across some of these bay bridges and you you see the oyster fleets out there and it's it's heartbreaking but it's once I think you get a chance to really dig into what's going on, I think the future for the oyster and for the bays, I think, you know, we're trying to move in the right direction, which is all we really can do is keep trying to, to, to right our wrongs before
1: we get ourselves into too much trouble. Yeah. And it's, um, some things will happen quicker than others. Right. And it's important. I think that people stay engaged for the long haul. Mm -hmm. Um, you you might see like an area that you care about become protected or you might see uh, something happen that Parks and Wildlife does and you're happy with and you're like okay good that's over but you know the the long conversation is is um, get us to a point to where we 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 can have oysters year round right and we're you know because you I assume you love oysters oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Love, I love eating <laughs> I love eating oysters and I, I I I hate the fact that we have to close the oyster season because there's not enough left to yeah. to harvest and 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 we're having to close I mean I, I like that we're doing it for sustainability reasons do not get me wrong yeah. but I hate the fact that there's just not enough out there.
0: Right, then we've gotten to the point that we have to, to close it. Yeah, yeah.
1: so um, we want to create more opportunities and have more oysters at the restaurants. Yeah. I lost track of what I was going to say. No, it's gone. A... Have you been to some of those oyster bars to where, you know, it's a whole menu. It's like a wine, oh, yeah. it's like a wine bar. You just pick and choose what, um, what region you want, where you want them from. Alabama's done a really good job with with moving to oyster farming yeah in in recent history um, Florida has a fairly robust uh, oyster uh, farming program a really good clam program yeah and then on up the east coast it's just take it's they're ahead of us yeah because they saw the declines before us right
0: so. no and it's kind of i mean and that's been it seems like one of the things i i've heard with with the area here is there's been a lot of influx of out-of-state harvest like people coming in from out-of-state and harvesting and then the oysters kind of leaving the area where we lose and that's you know kind of expedited yeah the oyster reef degradation is a lot of the oyster shell doesn't doesn't make it back where it's supposed to go
1: right so those those outside um boats yeah out-of-state boats you know that's that goes back to that whole available license situation yeah. that I spoke to earlier, they'll assign that license to yeah. to one of those vessels. So, um yes, they're out of state boats, but you likely have in state players right. yeah. helping get those guys here to harvest the oysters. Yeah. Um and then well, dang, I forgot now I forgot I lost where I was. But anyways, the uh we we want to um We want more oysters. Like, if you had to boil it down, the whole conversation down to two words, more oysters. More oysters. (laughs) We want more oysters. More oysters. Because more oysters
0: helps with more redfish. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Even though we went went fishing yesterday, shot an episode of the Rough Log, which I'm really excited. I went through the footage a little bit last night, and I'm excited to
1: put that one together. Oh, God. (laughs) I can't, yeah. <laughs> Good thing I'm not afraid to embarrass myself because um, there'll be plenty of embarrassing footage on that thing. <laughs> but we, uh, so we snuck
0: out. Shane, um, you never, you caught speckled trout on fly.
1: One speckled trout. One speckled trout. That was my second time fly Fly fishing. fishing. Yeah. And, uh,
0: yeah, I think that was my... First time putting somebody on the bow that with with your experience level, so I was nervous. Really? I was really nervous too. Because <laughs> I, was I like, didn't know that. How am I, I going to do this? <laughs> 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 Luckily, the redfish. I think they got the memo, and they were everywhere. everywhere. We. I don't. I couldn't even tell you how many we saw. We saw so many, and then they were just some of the happiest redfish that i've seen in a long time um we we had a we had some wind out of the north nice i mean it really wasn't too bad of a wind and then just bluebird beautiful
1: conditions um i thought it was windy like for a first time learning (laughs) how to fly fish i was like this is really windy (laughs) oh boy (laughs)
0: No, so when I first when I first got here, I think I told you when I first got here, one of the uh one of the guys in the fly shop in Corpus told me, he said, if you can successfully fly fish consistently on the Texas coast, you can go anywhere. And it's because of the wind. So that yeah. like yesterday's wind I mean it it was probably 15 to 20, especially when we got out away from from some of the protection.
1: Yeah. Which is normal. That's no, like that's cor- normal. Corpus has 15 mile an hour winds, 275 yeah, days a year. It's so normal. That is normal. So,
0: but uh, tell, talk a little bit about uh, that first that first fish and that first experience with that redfish.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, and I told you last night, but like, thank you. Yeah. And to have a coach behind me um, through what, like I said, it was. Um, my second time and not s- comfortable at all up there, and it was funny. My um, my confidence just came in waves, like throughout <laughs> the day. And I thought about this last night before I went to bed. And I, you know, there was a couple of times I felt really good casting, and we'd see a fish, and I was just thinking I could reach it or or you know put it put the fly in the right place. And then other times it's just like, oh God, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs>
0: That doesn't, but, I, I haven't got rid of that, okay. by the way. <laughs> okay.
1: But to have you back there and then, you know, stopping and resetting and say, okay, you're doing this, you need to try to do this, um, and, and or, you know, adjusting, making adjustments for me was invaluable and really, really appreciated that. The first, um, the first red on the fly, it felt like, I mean, it was an entire new feeling. Yeah, catching catching that fish, and you know, I I felt everything. It was every little movement he made in the water. I I had it in my hand. I felt it <laughs> happening, and um, not not. It's just different than conventional tackle and um, having the reel and the tackle absorb so much of that activity. Yeah. I mean, I was in control or, or not in control yeah, yeah just depending. yeah um and so it was you know um it's gonna be a game changer for me or a life changer and <laughs> I, I don't i'm not gonna say that i'm gonna go 100 all in fly fishing every time i will still i mean i have kids so we're, yeah we're gonna go yeah. soak some bait every now and then but um you know for me when i have the when when we're going out across the and everybody's loading up dad and my brother loading up their bait casters i'm throwing in the fly reel and uh just for that day just commit to it like we did yesterday and uh you know i want to jump in um it's an intimate experience and it's something that i want you know after that first one i wanted to do it again and again and (laughs) again and it didn't matter the size of the fish for me right at this point in my fly fishing career (laughs) i haven't
0: got there I yeah. still like 16-inch redfish. Yeah. I think one of the coolest eats that we had was
1: was probably a 17, yeah. somewhere in that range. I think maybe it was the last one. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, you had swapped flies, and um, watching that fish turn around and come get it was... Eyes out of the water. <laughs> yeah. That was really, that was cool. It was, yeah, it was just an awesome experience. A yeah. long ways to go, and I'm glad I finally... Got the, my feet wet and, yeah. and jumped in. It's it's, it's, it, it's an intimidating for me. It was an intimidating thing to to try to do and get into. I was much more comfortable, like I told you, going jumping into archery than I was this. And I don't know why, but um, maybe it's because I'm older now than I was when I jumped into archery. And so you, anyways, it was it was awesome.
0: No, it's it. Uh, I mean, I you know like when I when I really got into it, I the first couple of times I put, went out on the water, I, I would put a spinning reel in, but ah, you know, just in case. And then finally I was like, I, I gotta just fully commit. I can't, I gotta just fully commit. And it is, you know, I, I'll tell you right now, I'll warn you as you get into it the first year or so, like, it's going to be a little frustrating. Um, that yesterday was one of the most cannot really think of many days where we've just never stopped seeing redfish like that. I mean, I think we went to two spots and both of them, we just were constantly in them all day. And, um, yeah, I, I, I still have those days where it's like, what am I doing? I need to, I, I don't know what I'm doing anymore.
1: If you you had an accomplished person in the bow of that boat yesterday, you would have had i don't know 20 fish in the
0: water in the boat to the boat if i we maybe, probably maybe we more. probably would have gotten too excited and started blowing shots <laughs> 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 so there was a few times where i was like yeah i probably probably would have messed that up too because <laughs> because i mean you see especially like you know some of those back areas where it gets super skinny you're in like inches of water the boat's Basically, maybe has an inch of water underneath it, and you got that red fish coming at you, and you're like, "Oh, this is easy." And then just for whatever reason, maybe the wind gusts, maybe you just get in your own head, and those are like the the. I think that I said it to you yesterday. Like, there's no layups. When you think you have a layup, something goes wrong,
1: and it's just as as bad as I am at the front of the boat. I'm much better up there than I am (laughs) at the back of the boat. (laughs) Oh, God, I thought I had that in the bag. And then <laughs> just my brain was not working the right way. Like, I was doing the opposite moves to try to turn the boat. anyways. That was that was even more embarrassing than my casting. <laughs> so. Hey, you still put me on one. Um, no, I think we were actually just sitting on the bank. We were spinning. We were spinning. We were spinning. I'm really yeah. good at the 360. Yeah. No, it was,
0: we were spinning. I was like, because I watched it last night. It, it's just the boat spins. And I'm like, <laughs> oh man, I'm so sorry. It's all right. <laughs> Throw the cast out. And um, yeah, that was one of those, that was one of those for whatever reason, every now and then I, I have moments of just grandeur where I just somehow manage to just look really good in front of somebody. But I can tell you there, uh, we went out, we were down, uh, fishing and camping down, down South. And Shane, I think I blew, like, I got to look through it still, but I blew at least 30 shots just in a row within like the same time period. So it's, you know, you just get in your own head. And, and I think, like you said and I'm, I'm glad it was helpful and it's something i probably need to start doing more of with just myself of just take a break take a breather just reset have a sip of water you know when when you start kind of yeah getting into it a little bit but
1: um when, when you know when you it it should be like automatic you know to, to think about where the place to fly and and um have the fish meet the fly at the right spot and I kept casting to the fish and I'd not to where it. the fish was going. Yeah. And then you talked to, you know, you're like, all right, it's like bird hunting. You know, you want to lead, lead them. And I was like, well, I suck at bird hunting <laughs> too. So, Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'm don't. i not horrible. I'm better. I'm actually better at bird hunting than fly fishing. So I'll get there. <laughs> but I'm still not
0: great. Oh, I still, I, I'm really good at hitting them in the head. And, you know, luckily yesterday morning they were into that. That was, that was really cool in the morning just to see them, you know, that they they hear that fly hit the water and then they, you know, they're looking, Mm -hmm. which, um, I don't know. I always think it's really cool. And, and, you know, I think, and you can maybe speak to it if, if you agree, but like, you kind of see where you, you listen to a lot of these fly fishermen they kind of get, I think a little romantic when they start talking about redfish and, and you kind of see how intimate it gets and you kind of, I think maybe you saw a little bit why, Yeah, why no, we all I, get a little.
1: <laughs> I get it. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I fully yeah. am there yet, but um, you know, I, I love bow hunting and being intimate with the environment yeah. with bow hunting. And you know, it's for me, it's, it's fairly similar and so i understand it completely from from that viewpoint Mm -hmm. and um no no i I think it's great to romanticize the experience because that's you know that's how it, it it really reaches you and 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 you know that that's goes back to the very beginning of our conversation and my romantic view of fishing in a in a bay system you know when i was seven and how that that may have affected my life. So, you know, that that holds true in a lot of different things.
0: Yeah. Well, sweet, man. Um, Definitely. If you find yourself down here again and you want to go out, just let me know, and I'll throw you back up there. I'm here a lot,
1: so yeah,
0: be careful what you wish for. <laughs> we'll get back up, and I and I know right now, um, if you're out for it, hopefully, maybe you know, six months or a year, I'd like to sit down again and kind of do an update with how things are going. Um, oyster wise, CC, you know, any yeah. concert, uh, new conservation stuff that comes up. If if you're up for it, and just
1: like summertime would be great. Yeah. And then, uh, oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, like, what's the January? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Six, seven months would be great on that subject specifically.
0: Yeah. Um, and then for anybody listening, what would be some good, um, I know CCA just came out with a big oyster resource. Um, what would be some other good resources if they want to look into more or if they want to follow along? I know you and myself and I think CCA Texas, BHA Texas, and Flatsworthy, all five of us post pretty regularly updates with what's going on with the oyster harvest um, on Instagram. Yeah. And, and if there's any, can you think of any other like good resources?
1: Yeah. Um, well, for, yeah. Follow if you're on Instagram, um, any of those that you mentioned, and and um, or all of them really follow all of them because you'll you might get a different viewpoint of yeah the issue i mean we're all going in the same direction but the uh, you know if you're like i said if you're not a member of Flatsworthy or bha or cca texas it's probably worth your while to become one mm-hmm. and um you'll stay up to date but of course always you know we're putting stuff out on facebook and then our website like you mentioned we just publicly released this oyster resource page that has a lot of memes not a lot but like six or seven memes and We'll post a video on there, and then we have a ton of other information on there, um, cited literature and things like that associated with um, those ecosystem services and and um, oyster resources. So that's on our cca.texas.org/oysters.
0: Okay, and then uh, talk about your podcast. Let's let's just touch on it real quick. Okay, okay so, so people can I, check it out.
1: Yeah, Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast, and I've been doing it since. Um, 2016 but i you know it's sporadic i'm not yeah. yeah i'm not um haven't been good at like every tuesday releasing one yeah I, um anyways i think i'm on 46 so 47 somewhere in there episodes and so i mean it's on on most um, um podcast podcast apps um but um we talk about fisheries mm-hmm. issues Sometimes it's random topics, and uh, it'll be more like an interview with, a, with, with an interesting person, and, and um, that's a, I think it's a good listen, especially if you want to just drill down into a specific issue that's yeah. associated with the coast. Most of the time we have um, podcast episodes on, on those things. And then also if there's something that you think is important – you know, like you're a cca member like hey dude why don't you try talking about this then you know hit me up and i'll try to find the right people and have that conversation
0: that's pretty cool yeah so i'm gonna leave i'm gonna leave some links down below so okay. you guys can find you guys listening and can find that stuff really easily and then go uh if you're not like shane said if you're not already go follow him on instagram follow cca texas on instagram and Flatsworthy. and uh if you could for me Hit subscribe, hit like, leave a review on Apple or Spotify. It helps me out, be able to do more stuff like this, bring you guys more conservation, more adventures, more all the stuff that I'm doing. I definitely would really appreciate it. And,
2: uh, yeah, see you guys next time. Thanks, Shane. Thank you.